Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Todd Borg's Private I.O. in McKenna has been acclaimed as a hero who walks in the footsteps of classic gumshoes like Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. But Todd's best-selling and award-winning Tahoe series has one attraction its predecessors lack, and that's Owen's sidekick, a good-natured Great Dane called Spot, who's become a big hit with readers. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Todd talks about how he came to have the best job in the world, why Tahoe is a great locale for a mystery series, and the reasons he thinks readers keep coming back for more. But before we get to Todd, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Todd's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Todd. Hello there, Todd, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. Great to be here. I really appreciate your interest. Look, beginning at the beginning, was there a once-upon-a-time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction, and if so, was there a particular catalyst for it? You know what? There wasn't any great uh, once-upon-a-time moment. I had no epiphanies or anything exciting like that. Um, you know, I got serious about writing in my late 20s, so I always felt that I came to this whole novel business um, late, and I remembered when I started writing novels that when I was 12 years old, my best friend said to me once, you know what, I think I'd like to be a novelist when I grow up. And I, I actually thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard, because it seemed obvious to me that writing a novel would be far too much work, and you would have to have some kind of specialized imagination, and, you know, I could never do such a thing. So um, when I started writing seriously in my late 20s, you know, I thought back on that. But then with time, I remember that, you know, back in the sixth grade, I wrote a mystery play, and we performed it in front of parents, us kids. And uh, when I was in fifth grade, I wrote a little short story. And, when I, and, and I have a younger, uh, I always thought of her as my baby sister, and when my family would go on car trips and she would sort of get, you know, a little restless, she and I would sit in the in the back seat of the station wagon, you know, that rear-facing seat, and I would tell her stories. I would just make stuff up, you know. It was, it was literally a, a once-upon-a-time kind of thing, and uh, and just make stuff up on the fly. Of course, all of those stories were probably ridiculously stupid, but... Clearly, as I think back on it, you know, I, I always kind of had it in my my blood, you know, the, the making up stories thing. I probably, you know, was a good liar as a kid making up stuff, but I don't remember that very well. <laughs> and tell me, that friend that said he was going to be a novelist, did he ever become one? Uh, no. <laughs> no, he he didn't. No, that was funny the way those things work. He, uh, yeah. he went into other work. So. <laughs> yeah. But and I know uh, for me, it always seemed like 
the idea when I when I when I decided I was going to get serious about it. You know, at that point, I was old enough to realize, you know, if one could do this, if you could actually pull it off, this would be the greatest job on earth. You know, because you you know sit around drinking coffee, making up stories. You know, your commute would be to the coffee maker and. And, you know, you would have no boss, and you could sleep in as long as you want, stay up as late as you want. You know, it seemed like a pretty ideal way to, to go through life. And and I had a lot of imagination, and so uh, I just dived in. And has it turned out to be the best thing you could possibly do? And is it like that? You sit around drinking coffee? <laughs> absolutely. It is absolutely the best thing I could ever imagine. I, you know, I have had other jobs, and, and writing is a dream job. And when you think about it, you know, we've all read books by people with illustrious careers. Uh, it's a standard, it's axiomatic that, that people with other careers, once they find success at writing, they always quit their other career. It doesn't make any difference if they were a heart surgeon or a lawyer or, you know, uh, an architect or, or a professor. They always quit because writing is so much more rewarding uh, you know, not only do you get to do what you want, but then you, you know, wake up every morning to fan mail and, it, you know, telling you how great your book is, it's really quite remarkable. So, yeah, greatest job on earth. That's great. And I hadn't ever thought of that before about, about people who start off part-time always give up the other job. But you're quite right. That, that's so true. Um, yeah, you don't ever find out, you don't ever meet writers who say, yeah, I used to be a writer, but now I went back to school and I'm, and I'm a lawyer. It's always the other way around. If you can find success as a writer, you always abandon the other job because, of course, the other job is more work and more tedious and less fun, and and we, and writers get to live in a in a fantasy world of their own making. So. Great. And now you mentioned that one of the things you wrote when you were a young a young kid was in the mystery genre, and and I wondered if it was just going to be a given that you would end up choosing mystery as your as a, as your genre. Well, you know, I I was weaned on Hardy Boys and Nancy Drews, and, and I graduated to Agatha Christie's, and this was just because my parents had all of those books, and they liked them, and so that was something something that I was, you know, imbued with. Although my first novel was a, a thriller, I didn't write a mystery for some time. I wrote four different books that are still in a drawer. One was a detective story, the other three were third-person thrillers, and so uh, I think I segued as a kid from the Agatha Christie thing into the, you know, the Robert Ludlum, Dick Francis, you know, kind of mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Um, so Owen McKenna, as a detective and as as the featured in a, a series of whodunit kind of novels, that that wasn't preordained that they would be mysteries, but I did always like detective novels as a kid. You know, I devoured all of the, you know, the Robert Parkers and the John D. McDonalds and you know and so forth. Yes, yes, sure. So it was kind of, it was logical for me to 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 try that at some point, and you know, and I and I'm still, you know, enamored of of thrillers, and at and and at times I thought I might even want to write a mainstream standalone, but right now Owen McKenna is doing well, so that 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 I'm pleased with. Yes, wonderful. Now you mentioned Owen; he used to be a San Francisco homicide detective, but a tragic event made him give up his job. And I gather we hear about that tragic event in book two. I haven't actually yes. read book two, but there's a bit of a um, backstory that comes through there. 
Yes. It seems to me that little bit I've read about you online that Owen does match over with you in a number of ways. Um, seems, you know, obviously has a real love of the um, Lake Tahoe countryside and um, a love of art, and I think that you paint. And I even wondered about flying. I wondered if you'd ever been a pilot because certainly in book one, there's a very uh, long and interesting um, phase where he, he pilots a plane at night in a very inhabitable circumstances. And the detail there is so great that I thought, gosh, I, I wonder if Todd's ever actually flown a plane into. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so I interesting. Have. I did yeah. take flying. I did take flying lessons when I was young. I never got my pilot's license, um, but yeah, I love flying. And so Owen and I share some things. I'm not a painter, by the way. My wife is a painter. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I do enjoy some of the things that Owen enjoys, um, but in many respects, we're really quite, quite not alike. Uh, you know, he's a a much nicer guy than I am. <laughs> you know, I'm more of a cynic. Uh, he has a better attitude. Um, he is, he's more social, you know, I'm more of an introvert. I mean, I, I, I'm not shy, but I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I think of me as a gregarious introvert, uh, whereas, you know, Owen is, uh, you know, he's, he's a loner by default because his girlfriend won't marry him and so forth. But, uh, he also, you know, physically, we're nothing alike. I mean, he's a big, strong guy with a lot of hair. Maybe that's wish fulfillment on my part. <laughs> I, I'm not a big, strong guy, and I don't have any hair. And <laughs> so, but you both um, own Great Danes. But I have. We, my wife and I have had three Great Danes. So when I was originally dreaming up the idea of Owen, I, I wanted, you know, I thought about the American detective archetype. Well, actually, all detective archetypes of uh, fictional detectives where, you know, they so often have sidekicks. I mean, you go back to Sherlock Holmes at Dr. Watson and Nero Wolf at Archie Goodwin, Travis McGee at Meyer, Spencer at Hawk, and I thought, you know, my detective should should probably have a, 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 a sidekick. And, and I couldn't come up with one that was satisfactory until one day I was out walking one of our Great Danes, and I thought, you know, a Great Dane would be a great sidekick because Great Danes uh, are... They're not the serious, intense dog that, like a lot of breeds, you know. Of, for example, they're considered one of the working breeds, but of all the working breeds, Great Danes have absolutely the least work ethic. They're just, you know, they want to be lovers and loungers and and lie on the couch with their head in your lap and eat popcorn with you. And um, so I thought that would give a counterpoint, a sort of a certain levity is a counterpoint to Owen McKenna. So when I created his sidekick Spot, Harlequin Great Dane, uh, that worked out very well. I didn't. I knew that Spot would be important. I didn't know how important, and I've learned from readers since that Spot is is critical. But Spot is, uh, you know, he's like all Great Danes. He's a little bit goofy. He's not super well trained. Uh, although I will say he's better trained than our Danes were, simply because I. I found out it's easier to train a fictional dog than a real dog. So, <laughs> and you and and Owen's trained him as an attack dog too. I don't know if there are many Great Danes that are also attack dogs. Well, he he's trained him just a little bit. Um, he's done a little bit of police dog work with him. Um, a little, not so much attack, but a more. Uh, 
just kind of intimidation. Spot can do his intimidation just by growling, but then he wags excitedly, like, did I act that role well? You know, he doesn't really, he's not, he doesn't have a mean streak in him. Uh, he's also trained on uh, Spot a little bit about uh, when it comes to scent trails, tracking, that kind of thing. Mm, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. And so, you know, we've got a little bit of that, but in every case, Spot is a is a is a rank amateur. You know, he's not like a professional search and yeah. rescue dog. Yeah. Yeah. He's not like a professional police police dog. Owen can fake a, a suspect into thinking. You know, if a suspect hears Owen saying, "I'm going to send in the dog," the suspect will get worried because the suspect doesn't know the Spot's really not very good at this. <laughs> so. <laughs> now. I imagine that it's given you a great deal of pleasure that Owen has been compared to some of the iconic private eyes like Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. Um, how important is it to you to be working in a classic tradition? Is it um, something you've consciously um, pursued and nurtured? No. Um, I the only way the only thing that I thought about as I as I was creating Owen the only thing about the classic detectives that I thought about was how I wanted Owen McKenna to be different. So I I didn't want him to be a wise cracker in the in the Philip Marlowe tradition. I didn't want him to be dark and depressed and and dreary in the Lou Archer tradition. I don't mean to slam Lou Archer, but you know, they they're kind of uh you know, the he struggles with depression and such. Um I didn't want Owen McKenna to be you know, just overwhelmingly, uh, you know, powerful in the Spencer tradition, uh, or like Hawk. You know, I I want mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. wanted, but I also didn't want him to be, you know, kind of apologetic and and not very, you know, like for example, Dick Francis, uh, his protagonists are often somewhat meek, uh, very. Interesting and intriguing, but I didn't want McKenna to to be meek. Um, he's not a you know in your face tough guy, but he can be tough when he when he wants to. So, so I mostly thought of him in terms of the differences between him and some of those those classic detectives. I think perhaps the protagonist who is most close to what I what I like in Owen is Travis McGee. I think that. John D. McDonald's Travis McGee series is the greatest American detective series, even though it's not a classic detective series. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was a strong, strong influence. Um, I, of course, I'm very pleased and flattered that uh, some of the reviewers have thought of Owen McKenna in in terms of you know in, in similar terms to the way they think of some of those classic detectives. Um. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's come to you're doing your. I think you're publishing your 16th Lake yes. Tahoe series yes. this yes. coming month. Just in, a, in a, next week, probably it is almost. Yeah. Um. Did you ever think that it was going to take you this far? Well, you know, when I when I came out with the first Owen McKenna, I. And I'd already completed four novels and, and gotten, you know, my giant pile of rejections like most writers. I had written many other partial novels, openings, treatments, outlines, ideas, character sketches and all of that, enough to discover something about what works and what doesn't work. And 
I had been through the business in the sense of submissions and, and going to writers' conferences and all that kind of thing a lot. So, you know, I understood the the likelihood or the lack of likelihood of, of finding success. So when I started the Owen McKenna idea, I, I took a little bit different approach from the other books that I'd written. Instead of just coming up with a with a hook or a premise or something that was catchy and then diving in, like say the, which of course is a fine thing to do. I mean, Stephen King writes that way. Lots of writers do. I thought that I would try something different and dream up a set of characters in a in a structure before I started writing. That was a new idea for me. So. When I did that, uh, as part of that concept, you think, well, what if this next approach were to be successful? And, of course, Mm -hmm. having always read, you know, devoured series and so forth, um, I was attracted to that. So I thought, well, I know the likelihood is that this first book will never go anywhere. It won't, you know, find any audience. It won't get good reviews. It won't sell. But what if? And so in that, with that sort of what-if scenario, I thought I should set this up in a way that would allow it to be a series. And, and so I, I chose the element of the characters and the stories such that if it did work, I could continue on. And so I came out with the first two books one month apart. And there, that in, was inspired by when John D. McDonald, who had already written 30 novels or whatever, when he came out with the first three Travis McGee's, his editor came up with the idea, let's do three Travis McGee's and do them one month apart. So in, in April, May, and June of 1964, they did boom, 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 three books in a row. And I thought, well, I don't have three books ready, but I got two, so let's do that. And so when I, when they they did well from the beginning... Then I thought, great, this was my dream come true. And from that point then, I could see that the potential existed that I could write, you know, a bunch of these. And so, and it's done, done very well, so I'm pleased. So, I well, it's like very to interesting. Sorry, that, um, but it's interesting to me that you mentioned that John McDonough did that in 1964 because that idea of rapid release publishing is something that's really become the, the kind of hot thing at the moment. It's even yeah. something that's talked about on line as being the way to go. And, and I actually did think that it was as a result of digital books, but obviously not. It, it has been around for quite a long time. Yeah. Well, you know, you know how it is with uh, writers when they come out with their first book. If they are fortunate enough to have readers like it, the very first question that readers ask is, so, is this? Are you going to be a one book wonder? Is there another book coming? Is there yeah. a series? Is yeah. there? You know, yeah. what's next? Are you going to make us happy and come out with more stories? And so, um, with the explosion of digital publishing, uh, you know, that has been a double edged sword. On one hand, it's wonderful that now the the, the threshold has been lowered, so. You know, anybody with a little study can come out with a book. But, of course, the flip side of that is there's a million new books every year. So how are you going to get, if you want to get noticed, of course, not everybody has the same goal to sell, but if your desire is to find an audience, then that begs the question, how in the world are you going to get noticed when there are a million new authors every year 
And the other thing, the component of getting noticed is that the vast majority of readers, when they're looking for a new book, they always turn to their favorite authors. They don't generally say, I need a new book, I finished this last one, you know, uh, uh, I'll look for a new author. No, they go, I like this Clive Cussler dude, I'm going to get them all, you know, that kind of thing. So the new author has a very difficult task to getting noticed. And one of the very best ways that a new author can, can get a little notice uh, among uh, librarians and, and reviewers and just readers in general is to not publish a book until you have multiples. Yeah, I think also, I mean, I know myself a little bit, that if you see that there's a series there, you think, oh, well, if I like it, there'll be more like it to read. So it's an incentive to start when you know that, well, if I really like this, there's going to be more than one there for me to continue on with. It, it kind of gives you a bit of confidence that it's worth investing the time in the first book. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. when I, you know, when I just had a few books out and I would do events and people would kind of look at the books and they'd go, oh, you got four of these, you know, I wonder if they're any good or whatever. And by the time I had ten books out, then you know, people's response was completely different. They would say, wow, 10 books, well, so they must be at least pretty good. <laughs> you know, and, of course, the reality is, is that they might have been terrible. <laughs> but, but when a reader sees, or a reviewer, or anybody else sees, there's more than just one or two lonely books there, you know, they're much more likely to give it a, a try. You know, I always use as the metaphor, you know, the restaurant analogy. A restaurant that only has one item on the menu has a very hard time interesting new diners. Yeah. A restaurant that has multiple items on the menu that look good, you know, it's it's completely different response. You know, people yeah. say, oh, let's try this, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the other decision you made was to go indie rather than be trade published. And I think, obviously, you were, you got that right just at the right time. Could you talk us through a little bit about that decision? Well, you know, I have always had an agent. I had an agent from point A. She loved the Owen McKenna, uh, the very first one I sent her, and she got a great response from, um, you know, the, the editors that she submitted to. We call them rave rejections, you know. <laughs> you know, they, the, the reviewers would... And she would tell me even jokes, you know, I had lunch with an editor today and she was very intrigued with your book, but she's never heard of you. And and anyway, what's this Tahoe? I thought that was a Chevrolet kind of thing. Um, So I'm impatient. And, you know, when, and I'm not young, I'm not the, I wasn't like, you, you know, of course, how the world is fascinated by authors in their 20s, especially if they're charming on TV or whatever. Well, when I got came out with the very first Owen McKenna's, you know, I was in my late 40s, and um, when my agent called me one day and said, do you have any video? That was back, of course, when a videotape was a big deal. And I said, no. And she said, oh, well, I know an editor who's interested in your platform, which, of course, was non-existent, but wants yes. to know if you have any platform and, and, you know, how do you come across on TV? And I said, Barbara, you know, I, the reality is is that, you know, I would have no idea about TV and the light, the Klieg lights would bounce off my poor bald head and blind the camera. And, you know, I don't think I'm that kind of person. But at that point in the 90s, the mid-90s, uh, this would be like 96, 97, 
the publishing business was completely switching over to authors who have a platform. Not it, it wasn't about the book so much. I mean, I remember hearing a talk by Michael Peach, who at the time was editor in chief at Little Brown, um, and now he's publisher at Hachette, the biggest publishing company in the world, and he said. The, the book is important, but what's far more important is your platform. Why in the world is anybody going to buy your book? There's so many books out there. And he pointed out that, you know, Saul Bellow, after he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, had a novel he couldn't publish because they, didn't, mm. they knew they weren't going to sell it. Mm. But Paris Hilton can get a six-figure advance because she has platform. She has reach, you know. Yeah. The CEO of a, of, a, of a giant company has platform because, you know, employees, 25,000 employees are going to want to buy the book. So I had no platform, and I basically, after multiple rejections, I said to my agent that I was thinking of self-publishing. And she said, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. You'll be confined to the ghetto of self-publishing, and you'll never get reviewed. Well, we went back and forth a lot, and uh, she eventually agreed to help me, give me advice and all that. She's still my agent, and she's, you know, been very wonderful for me. Uh, and she's only had one book to sell for me, and that's the uh, one that went sold to um, actually a subsidiary of Hachette in France, a French translation. Um, but I went ahead because I was stubborn, and I thought, you know, I'm, I can see what's going to happen. I'm going to be 90 years old someday, and I'm going to think I should have done something with those books. And, of course, this was all before digital publishing or anything like that, before most people had heard of Amazon. So... Um, I decided to do it in a traditional way, so I started a company, and so so my books are, to be accurate, I would say my books are are traditionally published, all the same traditional approach, you know, printed mm-hmm. offset, warehouse, shipped to distributors, um, that kind of thing, galleys go out to reviewers and all that. The only difference is that I own the company. It's not a big deal, just, you know, it's a small business, it just does my book. Yes. And uh, and so from the very beginning, I got good reviews in Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and Booklist and uh, Library Journal, and it, and it just went very very well. So so I I self published as a as a reaction to the change in the industry that you couldn't get published anymore unless you had the syndicated newspaper column or unless you were young and beautiful and had a sports show on TV or, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. It's, yeah, you know, yeah, so. the old platform thing, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So would you say, I, I was going to ask you if there was one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success, and I wonder if that is it, that being having the courage to, to, to take that step and self-publish. But I'm um, not putting words in your mouth. What, if, yeah. if there was one thing, what do you think it would be? I well, that helps with success. It's not, I didn't think it was critical, but it does help because the author, more than anybody, understands, you know, what it is they want to put, put across. And, and so if the author's in charge, the author can choose covers. Many authors don't choose good covers. They design them themselves, which is universally a mistake, I think. Um, but the author can decide the marketing and the big-picture stuff. And so... If you look at most New York published authors, you'll see that they've been through multiple publishers. You know, their publishers sell to other publishers, or their editor leaves and goes to a different house, and so they end up with a hodgepodge of books that have different formats and and different sizes, different cover designs. You know, there isn't a cohesive network of of books, 
because the authors didn't have control. So that's not to say that that's not a great way to go. You know, the Lee Childs of the world do very well. Um, but it's a, a struggle for new writers to... You know, I had a, a, a guy I know who had two books with Simon & Schuster, and he had no... He, and he was orphaned, he was dropped, and he had no mm-hmm. reviews. And he said to me, how do you get reviews? And I said, well, you just send them out. And he said, well, I called my publicist at Simon & Schuster, and and they said, well, we didn't send out your book. We have 500 authors, and we have to concentrate on the top 10. So he got no support. So in that case, yes, self-publishing, if you do it thoughtfully, can be a huge help. But I think the most critical thing to success for me, and I'm not saying this would apply to other people, but it is writing books that make people intrigued but also feel good. So, for example, um, you know, my books all have justice at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a feel-good component. The bad guy always gets caught. It's not like real life. Um, there's no bleak, no bleak in my books. Yeah. So there's a quality when someone finishes the book, if they like the characters and the story. It's kind of a quality of at the end of the book they think, well, that that's good. I like the way that ended. That was, you know, and then they get another. So I think that's uh, one of the most critical things to success. The other is you have to be doggedly persistent. You know, there are many writers who do four books and then give up. They say, well, that's an awful lot of work, and I didn't make any money, and, and I was discontinued and remaindered and all that. Well, you know, Hugh Howey makes a good point of saying, you know, he before he was ever going to decide to be a writer, he was going to write 20 novels. Mm. Well, look what happened to him, you know. Mm. Yeah. In writing lots and lots of books, you learn the tricks and the techniques, and you develop your chops, and you get better and better. And so I think that's the single greatest thing that a writer can do to ensure success. I've, I've never met a writer who's written 20 books, who hasn't been successful. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. We've all met an astonishing number of writers who've given up, even though they wrote good books and got good reviews. Yeah. So Um, that's that's the thing. Lake Tahoe, I think, is also part of the attraction of your books, that there's such a strong sense of place there, and and it's a place that's very interesting and that obviously Owen loves and values. And, And I wondered... Readers often like to go to a place where a book's set and kind of almost follow their character around. And if, you, if someone was coming to Tahoe for three to five days and, and they wanted to do a kind of Owen McKenna mystery tour, where would you suggest they go? <laughs> and why don't you do a blog about it? <laughs> <laughs> I should. I've had multiple people tell me that they, when they read the books, they make notes of the places they want to visit and then they go on their own Owen McKenna tour. And one woman yeah. had hired a bus, a rental bus, for for a reunion, a family reunion, and it was going to be an Owen McKenna tour. So, oh, so yeah, <laughs> I think the the key is that uh, people would concentrate on the physical aspects to Lake Tahoe. You know, there are some good businesses, and there are some intriguing cultural things, and all that. And you could do a literary tour if you want, and go see where Steinbeck lived when he lived in Tahoe and, uh, you know, uh, or uh, what's the name of the philosopher who uh, lived in Tahoe for a while. Um, There are lots of things like that, but I think that what makes Tahoe, you know, different is those physical things, you know, 
there are people who come to Tahoe and they never go to Emerald Bay. You know, that would be like going to Denver and never driving up to see the mountains, the Rocky Mountains or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, you have to take a trip around the lake, whether you take a bus tour or whether you drive. Most people would drive. You have to see Emerald Bay. You have to go to the shore. The essence of Tahoe is what you experience at the shore. We have these massive beaches. We have beaches as big as some of the ones in Southern California. Um, we have rocky shores where you hike down to. But it's from the shore that you see, you get that essence of, oh, my gosh, you can see 60 feet straight down into the water, and you can see the mountains reflected, and you can see these astonishing views. Um and you can't do that if you're sitting in a car or a tour bus. You can bicycle, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, Emerald Bay, the shore, I would definitely say everybody should get up from above and look at it. So if you're a hiker, you hike one of the local mountains, Mount Talak or any number of the local mountains. If you're not a hiker, then you ride the, the gondola at Heavenly up to the top or you ride the cable car at Squaw up to the top. And you look down on the lake because once you're up there, you go, oh, my gosh, that's amazing, <laughs> you know, yeah. from yeah. 3,000 feet above. Yeah. Yeah. So it's those physical things. Get around the lake, get down to the shore, get down to the rock, get down to the beach, make sure you see Emerald Bay. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a remarkable place, but for those reasons, when people come to Tahoe and all they do is gamble, that's a that's you know for some guy like me that's a tragedy. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you can gamble anywhere, but there's only one Lake Tahoe. But that's the lake you got to go see the lake. So. I can see why National Geographic has got you as as a geotourism um, advocate on the on their site. <laughs> <laughs> Look, turning to Todd as reader because this is the binge reading the the joys of binge reading podcast. Who do you like to binge read? Um, well, I read, I'm like a lot of writers in that the more I get into writing, the more I feel guilty when I read because I think, well, if I've got time to read, I've got time to write and I've got a lot of stories I'm worried about not having time to get to. So what am I doing kind of thing? But I read, uh, broadly and I used to read, you know, narrow and deep and now I read broadly and shallow. So I'm more interested in reading a new author than, you know, finishing all of the bookshelf of, you know, James Lee Burke or, you know, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Robert Grace mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I yeah. like to sample, you know, the books that that intrigue me and, and such. If I really want to do binge reading, then I will, you know, sit down and, and power through, you know, a half dozen of, uh, you know, any of my favorite authors. You know, I'll go back and reread a bunch of Dick Francis's to see, you know, just for the joy, but also to see how it, how he works the magic. I'll go back and read Sue Grafton or Sarah Paretsky. You know, these these are highly lauded writers, but they're more important than people even give them credit for having created the whole female, you know, protagonist detective genre. You know, mm-hmm. these are very important people and it's really good to go back and immerse yourself in a, in a bunch of them, not just one, but a bunch so you see how the whole kind of picture comes together. Um, sure. 
It's interesting. So, yeah. so you look at them from a craft aspect as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that reading is is the way is the second best way to learn about writing. The best way, of course, is is writing. Yeah, You got yeah. to get out there and do it in order to to learn the process. So. Well, sadly, all, we're running out. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. I was just going to say. So the classics, I do like to binge read the classics. I'll go back and read a half dozen John D. McDonalds, you know, every few years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are starting to run out of time. I could feel as if I could talk to you all morning. But um, circling back to the beginning and to the end, if is there a stage, at any stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, would you change anything? Or, or are you, do you feel that it had its own sort of almost predetermined path? Um, I've been very fortunate. If, if I hadn't been fortunate, then I might say, oh, I should, you know, change everything dramatically. But, of course, hindsight gives our choices credibility or discredibility, you know, depending on what what happened. Um, so, you know, having been fortunate, I probably wouldn't change much. But I would, having written four novels that are in a drawer before I started what became the first Owen McKenna, and having written a bunch of other uh, partial novels, I would have, I would expand that. I, I, uh, I would do more like Hugh Howie. I would decide that before I ever raised my hand and waved and said, hey, look, I wrote a book, uh, that I had, you know, ten novels completed uh, or more because of the what you learn in the process of doing multiple books is uh, beyond, you know, anything that you could expect in advance. And so when you, at any stage, if you have more experience, you know that that's a benefit. So um, I, I lean toward that direction. When when writers ask me, you know, I've written a book. What what's next? Um, you know, my strong sense, although I may not say it forcefully, but my strong sense is what's next is write another book and then write another book. <laughs> and don't yes. call an agent and don't send it out and don't risk embarrassing yourself and don't you know try to rush to publish just because you can now. You know, take take your time. You know, develop your chops. And, and have more in the more inventory because if you are successful, then like you already said, you know people are going to want the next book. So if you've already got the next one or ten written, well, how great is that? You know. So. Yeah, there's a successful romance author actually, Stephanie Lawrence, and I've got a quote of hers on my wall. It says, "Write the next and the next." Whenever writers ask her, "How do you how do you make your life a success?" Write the next and the next, and don't expect to get anywhere until you have six and possibly as many as ten books out there. Absolutely, absolutely. It's the only common denominator for successful authors. We we all come from different backgrounds, different places. We speak different languages. We we look different. We everything about us varies. There's only one common ground that all successful authors have, with very few exceptions, and that is we've written a bunch of books. Yes. And even some of the one-book wonders out there, when you research, you find out, oh, surprise, they were a one-book wonder on that name, but they wrote 24 romances under a different name before that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. it's just yeah. like figure skaters. You know, the ones who mm. succeed are the ones who really put in their time, and mm. uh, and then mm. you get the rewards, and you're glad you did it. So Yeah. So what's next for... 
Todd, the writer, I, I see a reference that you are actually working on a second series and you say you will maybe start to publish that when you've got three books completed. Maybe you're now secretly squirreling away more than three, but <laughs> what, what have you got planned for the future? Uh, Owen McKenna, you know, pays the mortgage, so I will continue to do one of those every year as long as my brain works. Uh, hopefully, my, my, you know, I'm 65, my brain should work another 15, 20 years, right? Yeah, um, hopefully. <laughs> and... I'm working on two other series, actually. Oh, gosh. And those are something that, yes, I won't do anything with until I have multiple books ready to go so that I could release them one month apart and so forth. Uh, I probably shouldn't even, you know, mention that fact. But, yeah, yeah I am, yeah. I am yeah. working on other stuff. And uh, are they be... mysteries? Could we ask just that much? Are they mysteries or... Uh, both both of them are thrillers. Oh, thrillers! Oh, great! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, think... no whodunit puzzle, but uh, you know a little bit of a puzzle, like most thrillers, but but not the intricate puzzle that you expect from a classic whodunit mystery genre. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, that's fabulous, Todd. Now, where can readers find you online? I know that you do a lot of appearances, but that's only useful for people in the states. In the wider audience, like in New Zealand and Australia, where can people find you online? Well, you know, they can go to my website, and if they want to write me, there's a contact button. My email is out there for, for anybody to, to use, um, and I, I respond to everybody. Uh, it may not be immediate, but I, but I do, um, unless I get some kind of computer glitch. You can count on my response. Um, I do have a weekly blog that is wide-ranging and may interest some people and may not interest others. It's got, you know, tile subjects and dog subjects and, and writing subjects and things like that. Uh, you can Google that Todd Bork blog, or, it's, or you can find it the link on my website. So that's my online presence. I don't do social media. Um, I'm a Luddite, and uh, I don't have those kinds of skills or time. There is a Facebook page under, under my name. It's a fan page that a fan put up, and um, so, but I'm not involved with it. I have nothing to do with it. So. If someone wants to get me online, there's, there isn't maybe as much as they would hope, but um, but they can write me I, I and they can look at my blog. You're very generous with your um, responses online because I've seen quite a long thread people asking advice about moving to Tahoe and where they should go and what real estate prices are like, and you seem to be very generous in sitting down and just conversing with people on quite a wide range of topics. Well, you know, I've... I've learned, as all writers do pretty early on, that uh, people are very generous with help. In the old days before Google, you know, if you wanted to research something and you called up a cop or something and said, hey, can we have, can I buy you a coffee and pick your brain? And so, people are always so generous. And I've also had the experience that many, many writers, you know, ahead of me were generous with me. And I think that that's something that should be returned. So, you know, it's an incredible luxury to have a reader. And I don't take any reader for granted. Uh, when a reader, you know, discovers something, whether it's a book or a blog or whatever, and writes me, you know, there are so many uncountable distractions out there. To think that a reader would put down their, you know, video on their phone to contact me about anything it's a huge gift, and so I feel that it's only right to respond as much as I can. So. 
Well, that's lovely. It certainly leaves a very nice feeling when, when you've got that attitude. And it's been wonderful talking to you today. It really has. So I'll, I'll, I'll follow up some of the, I haven't read the whole 16, but I really feel now I want to go through the whole lot. So it's lovely to have had the chance to talk. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.